And in those days men shall seek death, and shall not find it, and they shall desire to die, and death shall fly from them. Kick episode 121 of Monster Kid Radio off with a band that has not appeared on the show before. This is the Mexican Weirdos. It's the song Super Tubo. It appears on there because it's a single, maybe an EP. It's called Doctor Abominable. You can find out more about them over at MexicanWeirdos.bandcamp.com or you can follow the link in the show notes over at MonsterKidRadio.net. The website for the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the podcast this week. I'm really excited because this week we're having a guest back on the show. It's been a little while since we've been visited by the good doctor. I'm talking about Dr. Gang Green. Larry Underwood is going to appear on the show, and he's bringing with him his favorite horror movie actor of all time. Talking about our man. Vincent Price. Now, in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, we're going to talk about the movie House of Wax, probably one of the, if not the definitive, Vincent Price film. It's a horror movie. It's a monster movie. It's Vincent Price playing an artist. There's all sorts of great stuff going on in this movie from 1953, originally in 3D. Well, Dr. Gang Green and I are going to talk about the movie in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, and stay tuned because in the next episode, we're going to talk some more with Dr. Gang Green about a project he's got going involving Vincent Price. I do want to remind everybody that you can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website. I already mentioned it. I'm going to mention it again. It's monsterkidradio.net. From here, you can find links to everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There's a link to our Live 365 channel, our YouTube page, our Flickr album, our Amazon store, which is where you can pick up books and movies and DVDs and Blu-rays, things that we talk about here on the show. And it helps support what we do here at the podcast. Speaking of support, I've had some people over the past year or so offer to give us a donation here at Monster Kid Radio. And and we thought about putting up like a PayPal button, that sort of thing. But I thought, let's do something a little bit more exciting. Monster Kid Radio now has a Patreon page. If you go to monsterkidradio.net, across the top there is a link for Patreon. Click on that or go to patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. And from here, you can help support the show on a monthly basis. We have support levels starting at $0.35, cents, which is what the cover price was of Famous Monsters of Filmland number one. We have various pledge levels going all the way up to $10 a month. Each one of these pledge levels have a name, a label. You know, the $0.35 cent pledge level is the Ackerman. The $10 pledge level is the Lemley. And I think since you're all good card-carrying monster kid boys and girls, you know the significance of those names. Well, we've got other names in there, other pledge levels. And for your pledge... Well, you might get something from us here at Monster Kid Radio. So I'm going to ask you to go check us out at patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. Or again, follow the link over at monsterkidradio.net. Also, if you have not gotten tired of hearing my voice and you want to hear a podcast that I appeared on this past weekend, head over to creepycastle.com. I appeared on that show with Halloween Jack and Dale Kay, as well as Ormsby. 
to talk about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde films. The story, how it's become one of the, if not the most adapted story to film of all time. It was a great conversation. I love hanging out with those guys. The Creepy Castle, one of my favorite shows. And, you know, if you're looking for something to do when you're not listening to MKR, go to creepycastle.com and you can watch horror movies, hosted horror movies, 24-7. And there's a chat room where you can participate in conversations with people watching the movies right there. I probably spend way too much time looking at this website while I'm at work. Don't tell my boss, okay? Again, there will be links to all of that in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. I'm itching to get into House of Wax with Larry Underwood, a.k.a. Dr. Gang Green, and we're going to do that right after this. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. is pleased to announce the opening soon of the most astounding motion picture since motion pictures began. I'd like to welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, a voice that we haven't had on in a while. It's been too long. I need an appointment, a checkup. With my favorite doctor, Dr. Gane Green, Larry Underwood. Welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. Thanks, Derek. Good to be here, man. What's going on in the world of Dr. Gane Green? Uh, everything's going just fine. In the world of Dr. Gane Green, I've uh, just started some new projects, enjoying this weather, waiting for Halloween season to, to roll around here. It's right around the corner now. You and me both. Yeah, man. The weather kind of has been, like you mentioned before we started talking here, um, fluctuating here as well between hot and cold. And last night, as a matter of fact, it was nice, cool, felt like fall. My son and I were walking around outside and planning what we're going to do for Halloween here at the house. And it's, it's going to be a good year. I'm looking forward to the weather changing in that nice fall weather around here. Portland's awesome during October, so I'm looking forward to that. But until then, you know, we've got some monster movies to keep us busy, you know, keep us occupied, keep the October Halloween spirit going all year round. Absolutely. Um, the one we're going to talk about today is one of my favorites in that vein. Oh, yeah. Some good stuff here. And we'll go ahead and tell people. I think people who have read the show notes already know. We're talking about 1953's House of Wax, starring one of your favorite actors. Vincent, Vincent Price. Price. Yeah, <laughs> who is an inspiration to you. Kind of the reason you're a horror host, right? That's right. Yeah, he's one of the two or three main influences, I'd say. Vincent Price, Alice Cooper, Sir Cecil Creep, our local horror host, and the uh, Saturday morning and afternoon movie programs that showed the Universal Classics and um, all the different horror movies like House of Wax. I actually got a chance to see House of Wax in 3D as a kid. Uh, my brother and I saw it one afternoon at a matinee. I don't know why they were showing it, but we um, got a chance to see it in 3D. Loved it. It's always been one of my favorites. Wow. So actually, like a film print, 35 millimeter or whatever. Yeah. Watch it in the original 3D. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, blue and red. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I have to say that I've never seen the film theatrically in 3D, and I only saw it in 3D for the first time uh, the other day in preparation of this podcast. <laughs> Very uh, cool. I've seen the movie flat. I've had it on DVD. I don't have the Blu-ray. Do you have the blue? I don't. The only print I have of this is a VHS copy. Oh, wow. Which is crazy considering it's one of my favorite movies, but I will be rectifying that soon. <laughs> I'll take care of that soon. I'm going to get, I'm going to upgrade. So you saw it in 3D, so you have a 3D TV? No. Um, <laughs> I wish. So I'd be watching Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D all the time. I know. Uh, I have that. I can't watch it in 3D. I have no way. No, this is actually an older 3D uh, process. Some. Honestly, I don't know how these people got their hands on it, and I'm sure they don't really have the rights to show it, but it's one of the channels on my Roku box. Mm-hmm. has a handful of 3D movies, but it's the old 3D. Okay. So I had to scramble and find a pair of 3D glasses around here a while back to make sure I could actually sit down and watch it in 3D on my television. <laughs> Very cool. You know the 3D, it's not super sharp, it's not super crisp, but it's 3D enough to really enjoy and respect what they were doing here we were talking off mic that a lot of the 3d in this is pretty gimmicky but it really shows off the 3d-ness of the film there's some great stuff happening here oh yeah and like i was saying before i prefer when i watch a 3d movie what i want i want 3d gimmicks i don't want a movie that was shot to be a flat movie and then just shoveled onto the 3D process, you know, and released in 3D. Who cares? I want 3D gimmicks. I want things popping out at me. I want axes flying at my face or paddle balls coming right at my face. You know what I'm saying? Things that are shot specifically to be shown in 3D. There's a lot of that in this. You mentioned the paddle balls, which is probably the most 3D scene of the whole thing. There's this guy with these paddle balls, and not only is he hitting the balls toward the camera, he's actually talking to the audience. Hey, you with the popcorn, watch out. Here I come. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I did like that, and you know, you mentioned the axes. There's a fist fight that takes place at mm-hmm. one point where the characters are actually throwing their fists toward the camera, which is awesome. But yeah. there's also a handful of very subtle, uh, maybe subtle is not quite the right word, but there are some scenes, some camera movement that's happening, especially at the beginning of the film, where we're going through the House of Wax and seeing all this, the wax figures, and the camera's kind of weaving in and out between the figures. And it's kind of a really cool 3D effect at least what I was able to see on my my Roku, it's a real cool 3D effect to see the different layers of figures Mm -hmm. as the camera's just kind of moving them through. So it's not just all a bunch of 3D jumps. Right. They really took advantage of the technology. And the fire scenes were kind of interesting, too, to see in 3D. That was fun to watch. And the film itself, the look of the film, it's a rich film. I mean, it's shot beautifully. The cinematography is great. The direction is great. Those fire scenes, the fire, man, it's so brilliant and bright, and they look dangerous. You know, he's in the these sets that are clearly on fire behind him. There's no green screen going on. I was surprised. Yeah. I've seen the movie before, but it's been years. So when I sat down to watch this again, I, I've been kicking myself for waiting for so long uh, between viewings, but I had forgotten about that fire scene. And it's not just a little fire scene. It's not like, well, there's a fire to the place moving on. It's a long, drug-out fire scene. Things are burning around them. They're getting into a fight. They're pushing each other around. They're trying to put the... It's a pretty intense scene. Yeah, and it's funny that they use him in those scenes with the fire where he's surrounded with fire, but yet they use a stunt double in the fist fight for Vincent. Really? Yeah, so it's kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) I guess Vincent didn't want to do the, the fist fight part. 
was he just not good at like fight choreography or was there something else going on there? Do you know? I don't know. I wonder. It's uh, kind of curious because his double clearly. I mean, he's keeping his back turned. You never see his face, but you see the other actor that's that's slugging him fine. So I don't know what if that was a price thing or if that was director. I don't know. Huh. Odd. Good question. Well, you mentioned the director, and I think this is probably one of the more interesting bits of trivia about the movie. The director's name Andre de Toth, mm-hmm. blind in one eye. <laughs> yeah, who gets put on a, a project to shoot something in 3D. <laughs> So he could not enjoy the 3D effects at all. I'm sure, you know, as a filmmaker, you kind of know what's going to work because, you know, you've got to have the 3D things pop into the camera lens. But it's not like he can watch it back to make sure it worked okay. So that's just, to me, is insane to think that they put this one-eyed guy on this 3D film. (laughs) It is, but when you think about it, he's just making a good movie, first and foremost, and he's assigning certain gimmicks or certain shots to be 3d this is we're shooting this specifically to be in 3d i mean you know what's going to come at the camera so you know he's an artist he can figure it out i don't think it necessarily precluded you know the use of both eyes i mean i I think it worked he obviously did a great job with it it was a huge success this movie and i think maybe that's part of the reason why the movie is so successful is that it's not just a gimmick it's not just a showcase of 3d effects there's a lot of that in there but really, the performances that he's able to get out of Price, the performance that Price brought to the table, and the story itself, it's a fun, creepy little horror story. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that this is one of the earliest remakes. I don't know if it's one of the earliest, but it's a really early remake. You talk mm-hmm. about the remake craze of today. Well, this was one of the first ones. This is an early remake. Yeah, remakes aren't anything new. This was a remake of 1933's Mystery of the Wax Museum with Faye Ray and Lionel Atwell. Which I've also seen. Have you seen it? I have not seen that. You know, it's not bad. It's color, which is kind of cool uh, for a 1933 film. Plot-wise, is it close? Uh, I mean, there's the fire, and it feels similar, but it's not quite the same. There's like mm. a, re- there's a reporter involved trying to figure things out, and... Yeah, I, I don't know. It's not as good. I think it's the reveal when Feyre pulls the mask off of Lionel Atwell. That's pretty cool. That's yeah. a cool scene. And, it, of course, it's Feyre. So she screams a lot, which is great. I mean, she yeah. was she was a screamer, and she was she good was at a, it. She had a good scream. Not all actresses can pull that off. No, not at all. I mean, so it's a good movie. I prefer this one. I prefer House of Wax. Yeah. yeah. You know, quite a bit. Definitely one of those movies where the remake is better. Just like the 2005 version of the film, right? (laughs) I wasn't even going to mention that. (laughs) Pretend that never existed. Okay, the 2005 version. I did Uh go see that in the theater. Oh, Larry, so it's your fault. Yeah, it's my fault. I'm one of those guys that complains loudly about these remakes and then continues to go see them. Curiosity got the better part of me. It's completely just a waste of time. It's just stupid. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> the the very end the very end of the film where the house itself is literally made of wax and melts are you kidding me how st- stupid is that i didn't see it you just spoiled it for me man thanks oh, there you go sorry man in the house of wax the house is made of wax well, of course because <laughs> you know it's a house of wow yeah yeah, I, I know two things about that movie. One, the score wasn't awful. I actually own the score. But two, Paris Hilton meets her maker in that one. And I know that's the clip that ended up on the internet. 
<laughs> so that's that's the only thing I know about that film. Yeah, Paris um, Hilton is in it. Yeah, we probably so, have devoted way too much time to that film. Let's I'm go back to the 1953. Back to yes, <laughs> a House of Wax that actually matters. So, should we talk about the movie? Sure, let's talk about the movie. Vincent Price, the man, he's the leading role. He's carrying the film. Mm-hmm. And he's a professor. What's he a professor of? Do we know? Professor Jared. And he mentions in there that he was given that title, but he's not, I don't think, an actual professor of anything. It's just sort of his nickname, I think. <laughs> okay. So, you got Professor Jared, who's running a wax museum. And this wax museum is one that has scenes of historical reenactments. Like you got Lincoln and Booth, and you've got Marie Antoinette, and you've got scenes that are pretty tame for the most part. Yeah, it's a historical display. I mean, you got Joan of Arc in there, and Joan of Arc becomes important later, but you, know, you got Joan of Arc in there. He's an artist, and he really takes time to craft his works. He's the guy that's actually sculpting these things. And I know this had to have been a real joy for Vincent doing this movie because he was such an art lover. And by this point in his career, he had become famous as an actor, but he was just as equally well-known to the general public as a connoisseur of art. He was yeah. a collector of paintings. He had opened his own gallery at one point, and he collected these things. You know, he went on later to become a spokesman for Sears and was the kind of the spearhead for this whole movement of art at the house. And they had these series of paintings that he would go out and and he would procure these paintings that Sears would turn around and sell to Vincent Price Collection, where you could buy a painting from really well-known artists, even classical artists. You could buy one of their paintings and have it in your house. All because of Vincent Price. I mean, because, we, Yeah, he wanted art to be affordable for everybody. So anyway, he was a big lover of the arts. So to be able to play an artist in this film you know, had to have been a really thrill. thrill for him. Yeah. So he has this partner at the Wax Museum who is not so thrilled with the business. And in fact, he's ready to, to get out of it and he wants to sell off his half to Price, but Price doesn't have the money to buy it. But he has somebody coming to look at his art who might be an investor. He wants to make money off of this thing. I mean, it's great that he's supporting Jared. That's great. But he wants to make some money. And there are other wax museums out there that are making more money. And you know, Burke, that's the partner's name, really wants Vincent or Jared I'm just going to call him. I'm going to interchange those two as I believe. Been surprised, Jared. Whatever he wants, Jared to embrace some of the more gruesome scenes. Mm -hmm. You know, because right. that's what's going to bring the people in. Well, Jared's like, no, no, this is beautiful artwork. That's not what I'm about. I'm about life and and celebrating these things. I don't want to go dark and gruesome, which again is pretty important because, well, some events are about to happen here that's going to completely shift Jared's point of view. Mm -hmm. He refuses, and so they have this this art critic, Sidney Wallace, this art critic, who comes mm -hmm. in and is going to look at the museum. And he loves the work, and he wants to invest, wants to buy out, but he's going to Europe. He can't. He's going to be gone out of the country for a little while. So he says, you know, maybe in a few months when I get back, we can talk then. Jared tells his partner, and the partner's like, you know, look, that's no good for me. It's not going to work, but hey, I got another idea. There's a way we can make some money right now. And Price is like, what are you talking about? He's like, well... <laughs> what if there was an accident here? What if this place burned down? And Price is like, what? A fire? Are you kidding me? So it's like, yeah, man, it'd be easy. All you got to do is strike a match like this. And he like lights fire to one of the statues right there. It goes up like a candle, man. It yeah. just, it's not good. Yeah, no. So and, um, they start scuffling. They get in a fist fight. Our fist fight we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. um, the place is continuing to go up in a blaze. Price is not momentarily unconscious. And the guy starts spreading 
fuel all over the place, including all over price. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's no longer just going to be an arson job. Now we've got to kill the guy, too, at the same time. Burke is not somebody I would ever get into business with. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. Can't make any money? Burn it down. Insurance. Yeah, burn it down. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the place goes up, and, and eventually Burke escapes, and Price is trapped inside the burning blaze. And the last we see of him is the place going up in, in flames, and he runs into one of the back rooms. and. Mm-hmm. Presumed dead. Fire department pulls up outside, and you know it's just too. It's too late. Place yeah, is we, gone. We've spent a lot of time watching the wax figures melt. It's kind of heartbreaking because they actually look good. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the figures. I don't know who did the figures here, who did the figure work, but I felt bad for Jared when the figures, especially like the Maria Antoinette, which Jared is practically in love with when it starts to go down when it starts to melt and get destroyed i mean it's heartbreaking to watch this art get destroyed in these flames it is and it's also really creepy because yeah. the faces the way the wax melts on them it's almost like skin peeling off the face and it runs down in layers so you've got these human figures with the skin just melting off their faces it's it's pretty cool yeah, it's the one Nazi at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark over and over and over again. I mean, just yeah, watch, and it's just prolonged. It's agonizingly uh, difficult to watch, but I mean, it's great filmmaking. Oh yeah, it's beautifully shot, and again, the the fire is so. Pr- I can't wait to get the Blu-ray of this and watch it. I need to see it on blue because I bet that pops. I bet it looks wonderful. The colors on this yeah. are amazing. And it starts out at nighttime. It's kind of a rainy, drizzly night. So you got your blues and dark colors, and it moves into the warm interior and then shifts into those oranges and reds of the fire. It's pretty cool. It's very well done. Well, some time passes. I mean, the fire is put out, and Burke did pretty well for himself. Mm-hmm. He's got a lady friend out, and he's talking about the insurance money. What was it, $25,000, which was a big deal at the time? Yeah, he got Jared's half. Uh, they, at first, he he couldn't get all of the money they wanted to to hold out. But when Jared didn't resurface, you know, he wound up getting all of it. I think. Right. They had to do some investigation because they wanted to make sure that he wasn't really dead. And he wasn't going to come forward with a claim. Well, he announces he's got some money. His lady friend's like, "Well, that's that's great. We're going to go get married now." <laughs> and and his lady friend is Morticia, Carolyn Jones. Yep, Morticia Adams. Although yeah. she's blonde in this, which is interesting. You know, the first time I saw it, I was watching for Morticia to show up, and I missed her. The movie ends, and I'm like, where was Morticia? Because yeah. if you don't know to look for her, and I know she's got those those trademark eyes. I mean, it's really easy to spot her now. But like back then when I first watched it, I was like, where is Morticia? I was looking for the long black hair. Yeah, and the squeaky voice she speaks in also is so different you know, the way she does Morticia. That exactly. Just, yeah, just night and day. But she's good, and she's got that little that laugh. Mm-hmm. We can stop to get the license, silly. <laughs> you know, like, uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. So he's got his 25000 bucks. Carolyn's wanting to marry him. He's like, yeah, yeah, well, okay, yeah, it might be fun, whatever. Goes back to his office. He's going to get his stuff. And this is where Price first resurfaces. And he's got a really cool look to him. He, he, kind of very kind of almost dark man-ish from the movie Dark Man. Very reminiscent. Oh, got you're the, right. Yeah, the, it is very much like that. I kind of wondered if Raimi maybe pulled some influence from that because, I mean, it's almost put them side by side. It's almost duplicated, you know? It really is. Yeah. The long black coat and the hat and the scarred face. He's walking with this kind of shuffling gait 
or he's obviously been damaged in the fire. He can't, his legs aren't working so well. But he shows up and he's ready to uh, get some revenge on on his partner. Now, I knew, you know, this was Vincent Price or at least one of Vincent Price's cronies involved, which we're going to meet later. Uh, but Burke has no clue. I don't think Burke ever really becomes aware that it's Jared back, does he? I don't know that he does. The way Burke is dispatched in this is was, pretty brutal. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie from 1953, and wow. It's, yeah. it's bloodless. And that's why this but, is the first really, truly horror film that Vincent was in. I don't know if it's the first time I came on your show here, but when we did our Vincent Price top five, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did, we did our top three Vincent Price films. Was it three? Did we do yeah. three top three Vincent Price films? You and I both hit on two of the most important films of Price's career when we were discussing. You chose Shock, and Shock was really Vincent's first villain role. Straight up, shock, completely. Yeah. I'm not. There's no redeeming qualities to him. I'm just a out-and-out villain. And I think House of Wax is his first Truly horror picture. This is probably, in my mind, the most important film for Vincent's horror career. This is the one that set him firmly on the path of horror where people said, hey, this is the boogeyman, you know, Price, the the horror guy. This is straight out and out horror. This scene here it just is a perfect illustration. He chokes him to death and then wraps a cord around his neck and ties it to the top of an elevator shaft and throws his former partner down the elevator shaft, hanging him, making it look like he was hung. And the body lands in front of a cleaning woman. <laughs> and it snaps. And this, this horrible sound, this thunk sound. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's pretty intense. He gets to play a monster in this. He gets to play a killer. It's, it's almost got a serial killer vibe going to it. I think this film is one that had reverberations throughout history. I mean, this this is a really uh, a film that was really influential. I think, like we mentioned, possibly the Dark Man thing. I think this makeup influenced Freddy Krueger yes. with the scars. I yes. think it definitely did. I think this is a direct precursor to his appearance in the Dr. Fibes movies later. I think that absolutely, without oh. this film, Fibes doesn't happen. They were almost pulling from Price's performance here in this movie when they did Fibes. Um, he's got the, the scarred face. It's covered up with the makeup, and he's got the reveal scene, just like in this movie. This was also another in a long line of house films in which Vincent appeared. And there was a whole string of house films. There was yeah. House on Haunted Hill, The House of Seven Gables, Bloodbath at the House of Death, House of Wax. I mean, he just kept getting cast in these house movies, and I think part of that was due to the, to the success of this film right here. It was just, everybody wanted a piece of it. I mean, obviously, without a movie like this, not only does Fives not happen, and I agree with you about the Fives connection, I don't know if we'd have Vincent Price the horror icon without a movie like this. Yeah, I think so. I mean, period. Yeah, this is definitely one of the ones that, or the one that started him on that career. So he hangs, getting back to, to this film, he yes, hangs yes. his partner, and uh, this poor cleaning lady screams, and this body suddenly just appears in the, in the shaft. It's pretty intense. Yeah, and so we get the police show up. They're investigating. They see the corpse hanging there, and they're wondering whether it's suicide. And In the meantime, Jared resurfaces, mm -hmm. which is, had to have been a bit of uh, threw off the had to have thrown off the audience a little bit. 
because we just saw Price, and obviously we know it's Price because he, we saw him in the fire. We know right. he, he was burned. We saw him get revenge on his partner, but now suddenly there's a new wax museum in town, and there's Vincent Price, and he's not scarred up. So, well, was that really him? So now we got a little confusion going on. Right. So Price has a new museum. He has a mute assistant named Igor, who is played by none other than <laughs> Charles Bronson. Wow. Vincent Price and Charles Bronson in a film together. I mean, it's a uh, young Charles Bronson, but still. And it was, wouldn't be the last time they played in a movie together. Oh, really? And yet they were in the Master of the World. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so you get to see them together again later on. Years before man believed he could fly, Jules Verne wrote about a ship like this. And this is our control center, the very heart of the Albatross. We have now reached a speed of 203 miles an hour, quite literally a ship of the sky. Vincent Price, perfectly cast as the idealist who pictures himself master of the world. His unwilling guests are Charles Bronson, Henry Hull, Mary Webster, David Frankham, Four people terrorized into desperate action. Sentenced to terrifying punishment. I am a man unto myself, Mr. Prudent, who has declared war against war. That is the purpose for which this ship was built. You below. This is Robert speaking. Do exactly as I say. You have no choice. merely sit by and watch Rover decimate the entire world. And what else can we do, Mr. Strzok? Destroy the albatross. And ourselves with it? Moment by moment, you cross over new horizons with Master of the World. London ahead, sir. Are the leaflets ready for dropping? crazy to me to see them together in a film, especially working together. I just, when you think Charles Bronson, the last thing you think is <laughs> classic horror movie. Exactly. And, um, you know, he really does a good job. He's playing this mute assistant. Obviously, he's young. He's big. He's pretty muscle-bound in this movie. But he, he does a good job in the limited amount of work that he gets in it. Uh, he's great. He's this great kind of hulking, menacing-looking assistant to the almost mad scientists that Vincent Price is in this thing. And of course, the same as Igor. And I mean, it's, he's good. As all good assistants should be named. Of course, of course. <laughs> of course, doctor. Of course. <laughs> Do you, did you ever have an Igor? Did I ever have it? Yeah, I had a, an Oogsley. An Oogsley. Okay. And I had another assistant named Lump, but both were straight from that mold. <laughs> i tell you who, if they ever remake this movie again, and they want to do it faithfully. I'll tell you who I would cast as Charles Bronson. And actually, I would cast in any Charles Bronson remake you want to make. And that's Josh Brolin. Because he looks just like Charles Bronson. Wow. And he's a great actor. I'm a big Josh Brolin fan. Huh. So, 
I don't know who you get to play Price. That's yeah, a much harder task, that. but well, it's just Johnny Depp, right? And then what he does? <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> so Price has this new wax museum, and this time he is embracing the horror. He's not fighting it anymore. Full out House of Horrors this time. Yeah, I mean, he still has the Marie Antoinette fetish. He still has the Joan of Arc. But he's also got scenes of torture, shock, you know, all this stuff going on. The rack, the guillotine. The investor who saw his former wax museum visits him here. And Price is wheelchair ridden. He can't walk. Um, he can't use, doesn't have use of his hands anymore, he tells him. But he still runs the museum. Now his assistant Igor does all the actual sculpting for him. He just sort of oversees the place. But they went ahead and they have embraced the horror. They're opening up the House of Wax, and that's where the paddleball guy comes in. He's out on the street. He's the huckster. He's trying to draw people in. He's he's uh, just sort of hustling out there. And hey, come on, step right up, ladies and gentlemen. Come on in. And and like you said, at one point he breaks the third wall. He he actually addresses the audience who's watching this movie. Yep. Paddle balls right in the face. Hey, watch out! I'm gonna hit your popcorn. I. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, unfortunately, he didn't do a lot of film. I think they just kind of brought him in as a, I mean, he was like a stand-up comedian. Reggie Rimel was that guy's name. He did a, hmm. he was like a stand-up. He did a lot of nightclub work, things like that. So I don't know how he got attached to the movie at all, but he does what he's supposed to do and he does it well. And I mean, his finale is bringing up the three paddle balls and doing things with them. It's impressive, especially in a 1950s 3D film. Yeah, it's fun. Absolutely. So yeah, Sidney Wallace is back in town and and. Professor Jared is showing him around the new museum. Like you said, we're seeing all this gruesome stuff going on. Jared's really changed character here. And I guess surviving a fire would do that to you. Mm-hmm. And the betrayal from his former partner. Oh, yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's twisted now. He's murdered a man. He's firmly on this path. And he's also got some really brilliant sculptures. These They're beautiful. But he explains that his assistant is doing the work. But... It's not really the truth. There's really something else going on here. And we learn little by little the the secret of the House of Wax. It has a much darker secret. You have to kind of, with this movie, there's a couple of things you just kind of have to roll with and enjoy them. And you can't think, oh, well, that's just, that's not realistic. This isn't, that could never happen. That's stupid. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, From a scientific point of view, the mask that he's wearing that she breaks off, we assume it's made of wax, right? But it couldn't be. But There's no way it could be. It's the same problem right. that you had with the original film, too, with uh, Lionel Atwell. Once the face is broken free, and it's this hard substance that couldn't have been flexible, couldn't have been talking to somebody and, and mistaken for real flesh. But it is such a dramatic scene. It's reminiscent. It also reminds me of Phantom of the Opera. I was going to say, I'd put it almost right up there with the Phantom Reveal. That phantom reveal where they pull the mask off the phantom and he turns around. This is definitely channeling that mm-hmm. for sure. But getting back to this film here, we cut back to Carolyn Jones, her character, and she suddenly started seeing some new man about town. We're not shown who it is, but we're able to piece together little by little that it's Price. Price is wooing her because he wants to use her for nefarious purposes. <laughs> yeah. Which are not what it sounds like it would be. <laughs> no, not the way you just put it made it sound a lot worse than it really well, I don't know if it's really a lot worse or not. I mean, ultimately, she's going to end up in the museum. So that's a pretty horrible fate. On permanent display, he's getting close to her so he can figure out 
getting himself in the position where he learns where she, who she is, where she lives, whatnot, and then suddenly our mysterious scarred figure pays her a visit. Mm-hmm. She has a roommate who lives in the boarding house with her. Uh, Sue Allen, played by Phyllis Kirk. And this is our leading lady for the movie. Mm-hmm. And Sue comes home one night. She's out job hunting unsuccessfully, and she finds her roommate dead. And in the room, in the corner, is lurking our mysterious scarred figure. Yeah. This is where we have a really cool chase scene. Sue escapes, runs out. Does she go out the window? I thought she went out the window. I mean, either way, we're starting to see some wonderful set work here, the production design here. I mean, this is right up there with classic 40s universal production design. Mm-hmm. The set and the world that we're in. It's like 1890s New York, so it's that style, but it's in this vivid color, and you know, it's nighttime, so it's got this wonderful kind of blue, dark blue kind of coloring to everything. It's just gorgeous. But at any rate, he's chasing her. Chasing yeah. her through the street. He's going to get her, too. She manages to escape. He chases her for a while. She winds up at the house of a friend's doorstep, banging on the door, <laughs> and uh, gets in just in the nick of time. Let's see. And that was Scott Andrews, played by Paul Persini? Persini? Picurni? Yeah. Paul goes to the House of Wax, and, you know, I mean, obviously Sue Ellen's shook it up by all this. She's going to stay with Paul and their family for a little while while she gets over the stress of everything that happened, which probably uh, is for the best anyway, because as we saw earlier, she really can't afford her room and board anymore at the boarding house. So she's got to go somewhere. So Scott brings her in and they start going to events together. And there's kind of sort of a little bit of a, a romantic feel. They never really go full on romance here, but I do feel like there is some chemistry between the two. Some oh, chemistry yeah. between he's, the two. He's at least wanting it. You know? Yeah. He's, he's interested. And they go to the House of Wax together. Now, he's an artist himself, so he's interested in seeing the House of Wax and maybe even meeting Professor Jared. Well, at the House of Wax, at some point, Jared has managed, or the mysterious figure, has managed to steal the body of Kathy. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great scene, by Oh, the it's way. a wonderful scene. Let's go back to that then. Yeah, the morgue. go back. The, her body is taken to the morgue. Yes, and you get this scene where the camera's panning through the dead bodies that are covered by sheets, and one of them sits upright, right towards the camera. <laughs> Looks great in 3D, by the way. And, you know, it's just rigor mortis. They put it well, back down. Which um, I found a little, like, really? You have to get used to that. The bodies were just, re- no. If that's what happened, I would never be, a, I would never go into a morgue. Well, not that I'd go into a morgue anyway, but no. Knowing that the bodies might just pop up at any given moment, mm-mm. so the caretakers leave the room after wheeling her body in well another body sits up and the pulls the sheet off of itself and it's our mysterious scarred figure again yes and he makes his way over to her body ties a rope around it and lowers it out (laughs) the window where his two assistants are waiting they load it in the cart and carry it off it's really a dark little scene you know it's pretty really is i mean this movie you got the hanging in the elevator shaft. You got this body being moved around. And this movie is just dark. It is. I mean, Price is gleeful in the whole thing. I mean, he's this gleefully villainous guy, mm-hmm. monster. Again, this was the one that set him up on this path, and, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. So they visit the wax so, museum, and yeah, they're looking at the figures, and suddenly there's one that is a spitting image of her former roommate. Mm-hmm. And if you know what you're looking for going into it, you you can't help but miss her now. Like I said, the first time I saw the movie, I was like, where's Morticia? You see it in the eyes. 
it's clearly Kathy's face as Joan of Arc. And that really disturbs Sue, who gets uncomfortably close to the the wax figure. And I was a little surprised that that was allowed to happen, not just once, but multiple times for the entire film, that it wasn't roped off. <laughs> yeah. But she's able to go in and get real close and is very concerned and expresses her concerns to Scott about the whole thing. Well, Professor Jared wheels in and explains that we took that figure from her newspaper photos. We take inspiration from living subjects for our figures here. And, you know, this is what happened. It's a perfectly reasonable explanation. I hope you understand. And I'm really sorry if it offended you or it shocked you. I didn't mean to, to disturb you, but you know, hope, do you think she'd mind? Well, Kathy loved having her picture taken. I don't think she'd mind. Oh, well, that's good to know. And then the professor and Scott, strike up a working relationship. Scott's going to come by the House of Wax later on and start working for Jared or studying under Jared. Yeah, he's an artist as well. Right. But meanwhile, she just sort of doesn't really buy this explanation and she, she figures it out because yeah. her former roommate only had one ear pierced. And so the statue only has one ear pierced. And she's like, now, wait a minute. How could he possibly get that kind of detail from a from a photograph, you know? Right. So she really pieces it back together and Decides to come back and pay a visit in after hours. <laughs> so she sneaks in uh-huh. and climbs up to the portrait and the, the figure and starts scraping on it to try to see if, if it is indeed maybe something underneath that wax. Well, we know. I mean, as, as a, a 2014 viewer of this movie, we know. <laughs> Yeah, we know. We, we know what's underneath there, but Sue is insistent on learning more, and, and really, we're sitting here thinking, come on, Sue, you're going to find out the secret. This is a bad deal. <laughs> you don't want anything to do with these people, especially after Professor Jared spent so much time leering at her earlier. <laughs> what do you see when you look at her face? I see my Marie Antoinette. Oh, well, here we go. You know, <laughs> This is bad. Sue, run. Don't go yeah. back to the museum after hours and where nobody can hear you or see you. Don't go back. But she does, and she's snooping around some more. Now, we skipped over the other assistant. I want to mention him real quick. I really liked this guy. Uh, his yeah. name is Leon Avril, played by Nedrick Young. He's uncredited in the movie, hmm. which is unfortunate, but I really liked this guy. I thought he was a, kind of underrated in terms of the acting in this film. He was, and he's intelligent. He had some stuff going on. You know, He was able to to be a true partner for, for Jared and help him out. Whereas Igor was obviously the strong arm. Yeah. But this guy, this guy was his actual assistant that could do some stuff. Mm -hmm. And he helped, helps explain away some things. And he does kind of help put the story together at the end. And it's, un it's unfortunate. He's the one that kind of damns Jared. Well, unfortunate for Jared, I guess, fortunate for, <laughs> for, for uh, Sue, but <laughs> I think it's important to mention that when she expresses her concerns to Scott, Scott finally decides to put her mind at rest by going to report her concerns to the police. Ah, uh, yeah. Because we have to get the police involved here, because ultimately they're also going to be responsible for helping save the day. They report this to the police, and the police, they start putting some pieces together, a lot of it off screen. So as she's snooping around the museum at night, as she's getting captured by Jared, the police are working out a deal, and they get their hands on Leon Avril, and they start learning what's going on. And I don't know if we should really explain exactly what happens at the end. I mean, we kind of know the overall. But that final scene, the final confrontation between everybody, the big climax, it's yeah. so good. 
Well, before we maybe we won't go all the way to the end, but we can definitely talk about the process. We, we have we to do learn that the yeah. the bodies are being covered. He's stealing these bodies from the morgue and and killing people and bringing them back so that he can cover them in wax and get these incredibly lifelike mm-hmm. statues, you know. Which again is another theme that's replayed in Bucket of Blood, the Roger Corman movie years later, where he kills the the cat and covers it and. And it makes a statue, you know, covers it in clay or whatever. And I mean, it's the same theme told again. Huh. This is a really influential movie. I think this was a, a key horror movie for a lot of reasons in a lot of ways, a lot of re- reverberations. Yeah, they've got this device set up where they've got the lady they'll, or they'll take a body and put them on, on a stretcher, basically. And they have all these jets of that are attached to a big giant vat of wax and it sprays the body with wax. It's a pretty complex machine and really cool. It is. It makes for a nice death trap later oh, on. Oh, it really does. <laughs> As every villain should have a death trap. <laughs> he explains the process early on in the movie when he's showing off his facilities to, I guess it's to... Um, to Scott, right? To Scott, yeah. And he's showing how they, they'll take a dummy and put it on this this table and cover it in wax. So it's, it's a pretty pretty neat scene. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's a great, like you said, you call it a death trap. It's just a wonderful contraption. I mean, once the process starts, once they light the fire on it to start getting the wax hot enough, it becomes this wonderful suspense piece. You know, how long will it take for the wax to become hot enough to where it can flow through the tubes and go down the pipe and then shower down on? It's just a really neat device. That's something that would fit in well in a haunted house setup, I think. This is wonderful wax kind of waxwork yeah. machinery. I love that. It's really good production design. Again, not only is he outside where they're running through the streets and all that. And not only is that well done, Jared's, for lack of a better term, laboratory yeah, that's is also is. fantastic. It is. Our leading lady is captured and put into the death trap, and it's up to our heroes and the police to try to save her in time before she's covered in wax as well. <laughs> they cut to shots of her hands and her feet bound yeah. in this machine. Well, she's naked, and I can't yeah. show her, you know, in 1953. Exactly. So. She's been naked, she's been stripped of her clothes, and... She's kind of glistening, like she might have been scrubbed down or something. I mean, there's it's a pretty brutal thing to think about what they had to do to this woman to get her ready for the treatment of the treatment, the waxworks, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, she's trying to claw. I mean, she's clawing her way. Out, and I swear, and I'd have to go back and double check. It looks like she's actually scratching her nails like down as she's trying to scratch her way out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. And you're cringing, hoping, and I mean, we know ultimately somebody's going to save, save the day, but man, what a, what a ride to get there. Yeah. It's good. It's more fist fights and more action. And, you know, that's the thing about this movie. It's got some good action. It's got scenes of horror. It's got dark scenes. It's got some comedy in there, you know, a little bit here and there. It's got a little, uh, TNA for the time, I guess, with the, the dance scene at where, you know, our, our boy takes, uh, (laughs) <laughs> you need to take your mind Thanks. off things. Let's go to the vaudeville show and watch the dancing girls. Yeah, she's like, good people come here? <laughs> oh, yes, all the time. Watch the women dance. Look watch at the that. women dance and stick their butts up in the camera in 3D. Yeah. Now, according to the <laughs> Internet Movie Database, and I don't know how true this is, but Grace Lee Whitney's one of the dancers, and she played Yeoman Rand in the original Star Trek. Oh, wow. So... <laughs> Okay. So, yeah, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I, I didn't notice her. I was not watching faces during that scene. But 
It's a oh, very, man. I mean, it's a period piece. It's got the action. It's got some dry comedy. It does. It's, it really is a classic horror film that's almost a gateway to the modern horror movement. You know, it's definitely a serial killer movie and it's definitely got uh, a monster in it. It's shot in color. So it's got a lot of really modern, a lot of modern feel to it. It's made in 1953. So it is still classic era movie. And I wonder if because it's a period piece, it's helped it in its aging. Cause I feel like this movie has aged incredibly well, even yeah. though it's pretty bloodless and you, you can't see a lot of TNA or whatever in, in 1953 because it's a period piece. I mean, I think a modern audience now can enjoy this movie. I'm asked a lot of times from different people, what movie do you think will be a good film to show younger kids or, or audiences that aren't really familiar with horror movies? What would be a good introductory film? And I usually go back to the Universal Pictures, but this film would possibly be a good one to start with. I mean, if you want to certainly to introduce them to Price, this wouldn't be a bad first Vincent movie to watch. No, and I think you nailed it when we were talking earlier about this being his first full-on, flat-out horror monster role. I mean, yeah, he did Tower of London, which has some creepy moments and all that, but that's still kind of a period historical piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you he know? did The Invisible Man Returns, which some people might say, okay, well, he's playing a monster in that. But in that movie, he's not really in control of his actions. I mean, he's under the influence of this mind-altering drug, and he's Sure. He's, it's not the same. I mean, this is a str- straight out man who is killing people, murdering them for a purpose and putting their dead bodies under wax and dis- on right. display in a museum. I mean, that's totally different ballgame here. I mean, I love Invisible Man Returns. I think it's a fantastic underrated film, but I think you're right. In that film, Price is a lot less about being the bad guy, the monster guy. He's more about trying to prove his innocence and yeah, it goes a little crazy, but you know, things are going to work out in the end. Yeah. And in a lot of those early films, he was cast as a, as a good guy. You know, he was the romantic lead or he was a supporting character that was just really just a good person. You know, it took a while before they really caught on to the fact that price is pretty good as the villain role. And then this was his first full out horror role. This is his first horror picture. That's such a good film. I really enjoyed it, and I'm glad you wanted to talk about it because it gave me a chance to revisit a movie that I hadn't seen in a very long time. And now I have to ask, I have to get it on blue. Uh, hello, Amazon wish list. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I got to get it, man. I got to see what it looks like. But then I have to get a 3D TV so I can watch it in 3D at home. I'd love to see this in a theater setting, though. I would love to see somebody bring this in, you know, for a limited screening. I don't know about a you know, massive re-release, but you know, one off or whatever. I want to see this theatrically. I'm jealous that you got to see it on the big screen, man. Well, it was fantastic. It's uh, been a long time though. I don't, you know, it was, I was a kid at the time, so I'd like to see it as an adult in a theater also. Dr. Gangreen is one of my favorite horror hosts, and I'm not just saying that because he's a friend of mine. I love what he does. Look him up over on YouTube or go to drgangreen.com or follow the links in the show notes, and you can check out episodes of his show and episodes of the new series that he's doing, the fantastic films of Vincent Price. As of this recording, he's up to episode seven, and we're going to learn all about the fantastic films of Vincent Price in the next episode of Monster Kid Radio coming out in a couple of days. Between now and then... If you have any comments or anything that you'd like to share with us here at the show, give us a call. Our voicemail line is 
MKR. That's 503-479-5657. Or shoot us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks for all of your support, and thanks for supporting all the people that have been on Monster Kid Radio in the past. I think I can speak for Randy Bowser when I say thank you to everybody who supported his Kickstarter campaign to get Karloff, the new one-person play, off the ground. There's still time to get involved if you're interested in that. We are less than $1,000 away. August 20th is the deadline on that. And for as little as $25, if you kick in a pledge of $25, bucks, you are going to get a DVD of the show. Of course, he's got different pledge levels as well, going all the way down to $1 if you want to help out. Well, again, follow the link in the show notes and tell them Monster Kid Radio sent you. All right, I'm out of here again. In a couple of days, we'll be back with Dr. Gang Green. In the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Super Tubo. That belongs to the Mexican Weirdos. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to everybody in a couple of days. And in those days, men shall seek death and shall not find it. And they shall desire to die, and death shall fly from them. Bye.